0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Chris's Courses and our current series, Questions in Genesis. We're going through the book of Genesis, trying to look at the questions that it wants us to ask about who God is and who we are as people of this God. So we've been taking our time so far, uh, really getting the foundation of the creation stories in chapters 1 and 2. So today, we're going to move into chapter 3 and see how everything kind of goes wrong. But what we've seen so far, it's important for us to start with this foundation of of good, not to start with chapter 3 and how uh, sin is a part of of creation, because uh, if we want to know what God really wants, we start with how things were in the beginning. And so one of the things that we saw, especially last week, is that humanity has a good relationship with creation, first of all, right? Between the land and the creatures and us and that humanity, in fact, was created in order to serve and protect creation, to care for it in sustainable ways, unlike so many of the things we do now that are uh, making it unsustainable and almost unlivable sometimes. And then in terms of uh, with one another, we saw that God creates man and woman because it's not good for any of us to be alone, whether we're talking about uh, a romantic relationship, marriage, or just community in general. We need that. That's part of Being human. And yet, being in community also creates challenges. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. That's what we're going to see this week in chapter three. It's not easy to live with other people, but the alternative to be alone ultimately makes us less human. And in terms of, of the relationship between male and female, as described in Genesis, the beginning, the defining feature of it is equality. The, the term that is used in the Hebrew of, of what uh, the human needs is an ezer konegdo. We talked about this last time. That It basically translates to a corresponding helper, but that's not a position of inferiority. Uh, there's no description of a hierarchy in the first couple of chapters. This is God's intent, that, that we exist as equals before sin comes into the picture. We're going to take a couple weeks to look at Genesis 3 because it is pretty important for understanding uh, the situation that we're in. So this week we're going to look at the causes of sin, and then for the next episode we'll look at the effects of sin. And before we get into chapter 3, there's a couple of relevant concepts from chapter 2 that we need to to pull back in. Some of them we talked a little bit about last time, uh, but some of them we haven't yet. And this is really important for establishing What the stakes are, so we saw in chapter two, verse twenty-five, that Adam and Eve uh, are—they're naked without shame—and talked about this as uh, indicating their their childishness, uh, how they're childlike. You know, and also read sometimes as a sign of intimacy between husband and wife. Right? There's no secrets; everything's out in the open. I think that's a good way to take that too. That'll preach, as they say, but. Again, what type of people uh, have no shame in being naked? Generally, it's children. You know, uh, (laughs) I have plenty of stories, which I probably shouldn't share on the Internet, of my kids uh, constantly coming out of their rooms when we had a bunch of people over, and they're completely naked. And so recognizing the need to cover up is a sign of maturity. And I would say generally that's that's a good thing, right? But shame is unhealthy. We don't want that. But, you know, it's just something that happens as you get older. And so we could, should see Adam and Eve as childish and, and immature. They're, they're kind of naive. That's a, a big part of uh, what's going to happen when they encounter the serpent in chapter three. And like we talked about last week, it's not necessarily a state that we want to reclaim. Yes, we should have a childlike faith, but we don't want to be childish and and not know anything as, as they kind of do. The biblical hope is maturity or growth towards perfection, growing in knowledge, you know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about, you know, now I know only in part. Then, in the resurrection, when all things are complete, I will I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. In right? that same place, he talks about, you know, putting childish things behind us. That's something we need to work towards, but does that happen instantly? Should it? And what would happen if we tried to grow up in an instant? Now, the other big question from chapter 2 is, what's the deal with this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, What does it represent? Why does God not want them to eat from it? There's a lot of different options out there, answers to those questions. Uh, I think one of the bad options, a bad answer, is that, well, it's all irrelevant because God says don't, and so they just aren't supposed to, right? It's all arbitrary. It doesn't symbolize anything or mean anything. God just put it there to test them. Uh, And in fact, God assumes or knows that they'll fail that test. Well, that's not very loving, is it? That's not caring. Uh, if you're a parent, do you set your kids up to fail? Uh, that's, that's how we should look at God, is uh, a metaphor, a, a powerful metaphor of how God relates to us, and so that's not what a good parent does. That shouldn't be a, the way we understand God working. Um, you know, If you cause your kids to hurt themselves or set them up where you know they're going to hurt themselves or make a, a bad choice, and then maybe help them or only helping some of them, uh, that would make you an unfit parent, so we shouldn't think of God in that way. The assumption behind Genesis and all Scripture is that humans have a choice, um, and so that's, you know, why make a command if they can only choose one way? So I think there's got to be more than just an, an arbitrary rule here, um, and so that gets into what does it mean by knowledge of good and evil. But that's also complicated too, right, because isn't knowledge good? I uh, recently went through a study on the book of Proverbs, and I think it would argue pretty strongly in that book that knowledge is a good thing, that we need wisdom. Uh, so Proverbs 18, 15 says, An intelligent mind acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So, again, if this tree is, is something that gives knowledge. Shouldn't, shouldn't they want that? And so maybe the, where the idea of knowledge of good and evil is maybe what makes this important, right? Do you really want to know evil? probably not. So, good and evil, or maybe right and wrong, is another way to think of that. Uh, That's a phrase, good and evil, that often occurs in the Old Testament to refer to discernment. Uh, People ask King David to act as a judge in that way, to discern between good and evil. That's what Solomon famously asked for in 1 Kings 3, uh, to be able to discern between those two. And so, it's about knowing right from wrong. And most sin for for people in Scripture and for us is, well, God says this is wrong, but I think it's okay this time. So, yeah, we can all make those mistakes, right, of, of uh, maybe not defining good and evil in the right terms. But then how well can immature humans discern right and wrong? If that's how we understand Adam and Eve here is immature and childlike, then they definitely are not in a place to be able to discern that. So maybe God was preparing them to be able to eat from this tree, so to speak, but they weren't ready for it yet. And so the big question going into chapter three is, will humans trust God to define good and evil? Are they going to claim that knowledge for their own? Is God trustworthy? So let's read from Genesis 3. I'll be just going back to the New Revised Standard Version. That's my usual translation. Um, So Genesis 1 to chapter 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, "Ah, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. and understanding what it is talking about with this, this serpent, right? Uh, he's clever, and they're naive. Now, it, crafty is usually the translation you'll find there, and that has you know, a pretty negative connotation, unless you're talking about arts and crafts. Uh, but the this, this same word is a common word in Proverbs, and there it often is better translated just as clever or prudent. It's, it's the opposite of foolish. So it's not inherently bad to, to have this quality. But the wordplay here is that the serpent is arum, clever, and uh, the word for naked, which just described the others, is arumim, right? So it's it's contrasting the two of them. The words aren't, you know, really talking about the same thing, but there's definitely some wordplay going on. So it's the idea that this serpent has street smarts and Adam and Eve don't. So uh, what is this serpent? What is this snake? Who is it? Is it just a serpent, or is it the devil? Now, this is another good place where we need to distinguish between the viewpoint of Genesis and how we can look back on it from a Christian perspective. In the worldview of Genesis, this is not a demonic power in rebellion against God. In fact, the concept of the Satan or the accuser does not develop in Israel until much later after the Babylonian exile. And just, again, let's just read it for what it says. How does Genesis describe it? It's an animal created by God, just like every other one. The fact that it can talk is actually irrelevant to the story. I know a lot of people wonder, well, what's the deal here? Could other animals talk? As interesting as those questions might be, I think that's the sort of question that Genesis has no interest in. And in fact, the fact that there's a uh, talking snake is maybe a clue to the genre and how we should understand this story. So it shows no interest in where this serpent comes from or why it's, if it's different from all the others or why it tempts them. The fact is temptation exists whether we know the source or not. So I say all that, but after acknowledging those facts, we can make the Christian interpretive move and connect with the, the tempter. Right? In fact, John does this in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, where he talks about the great dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we can make that move, but, but just know that in the mindset of Genesis, that's not the way they looked at the world. So as we read this, this interaction here, uh, we can ask, well, how are people led away from God? What, what goes into that? What methods are used in temptation? So first you see there's uh, the sowing the seeds of mistrust with the serpent's question, did God say? Right? And in the Hebrew, it's not a straight question. It's more like, can you believe God said? Uh, you know it's kind of leading in a certain certain direction and then there's twisting of the truth right you so say you can't eat of any tree well well that's not true but just even putting that idea out there makes god seem less generous less good uh, then there's lies uh, sort of about the consequences right you won't you won't die um, well how would how would the serpent know that Although, uh, do they die in the day that they eat it, like God said? Well, actually, no. And next time we'll talk about why that might be. And then offer something appealing, right? You'll be like God. Well, they already are, right? We've talked a lot about how they are made in the image of God. So why would they need more of that somehow? Uh, And behind a lot of this is an attack on God's character, right? God is being withholding. God doesn't want you to have this good thing, and I do. Um, so these are all the kind of thoughts that I'm guessing most all of us have experienced on our way to, to temptation, on our way to sin. Uh, that We kind of twist the truth. Uh, we don't trust God fully. Uh, we, we think of what we want is going to be appealing and ignore what consequences might come from it. And so all those things combine, and they, they choose to eat. I think it's important to emphasize here the, the mutual guilt and responsibility. It's unfair to only blame Eve. It clearly says that Adam is with her the whole time. Uh, she doesn't tempt him or convince him. She just gives it and eats. Like He heard all this conversation too. When the serpent says you, he's speaking in plural. And even if you go to the New Testament, yes, Paul will, will blame Eve in 1 Timothy 2, but he blames Adam in Romans chapter 5. It, in both cases, it's just part of his argument. It depends on the situation that he's addressing, which person he's going to bring up. And so we shouldn't use this story to say that women are naturally more gullible than men or say that they're more responsible for the state of the world. That is um, just completely not part of the text here. That comes from, from somewhere else. And so they, they eat the fruit. And the immediate result of this sin is shame, and symbolized by them recognizing their nakedness. So again, we, we think about this in terms of them being childlike. What would happen if my four year old daughter were naked, you know, in public or, you know, around a bunch of people, and I could instantly just give her an adult understanding of her nakedness. She's immediately gonna, gonna cover up and and feel ashamed, maybe run away. It's this kind of it's a loss of innocence. I think that's what's happening here. It's a picture of them having to grow up too fast. And maybe that rings true for some of you. Some of you had to grow up a little too fast. You had to experience things or or handle things that you weren't meant to. You weren't really ready for because the adults in your life weren't being adults. I think that's the picture that we're experiencing here, that we're seeing here, and that's what leads to this this shame of the they're grasping this knowledge. Too soon. It's not necessarily the knowledge itself being bad, it's that they weren't ready for it. You know, driving a car is good. Being able to use the stove is good. But what would let what would happen if I let my kids do that right now? They're not ready for it, and they're just gonna hurt themselves and and maybe hurt others. Knowledge of right and wrong is good, but it has to be claimed on God's terms and trust that God will reveal it to us in the right time. And so, as adults, I assume, I don't think any kids would be listening to this, kudos to you if you are, uh, when is it our job, actually, to decide what's right and wrong, and when is that being presumptuous? You know, that's part of being mature, is, is working out those sort of things, uh, doing that work of discernment. Sometimes we have a very clear description of what's right or wrong in a certain situation, but sometimes, I think a lot of times, actually, we've got to do some work to discern those things. You know, you think about, you know, how we use scripture in that and what the church has done through history. I think slavery is a good example of this process, this need for discernment here. Because the Bible doesn't just come out and say, slavery is bad, you need to stop it. In fact, it just kind of assumes that it will always be around. But in fact, it were people; it was people that were truly committed to seeing, you know, what's most foundational in scripture. Ideas like all people being made in the image of God that led them to work against an idea like slavery, to say that this is wrong, and so that's that's the call that we have if we're trying to be mature. But we do that in my, in view of what God has told us. We're not going against God as we determine what's right or what's wrong. We're discerning God's desires with wisdom, and we're going to make mistakes too. But hopefully, we can do that uh, with with the right motivations and as much as possible. Uh, work against these temptations that we see here, or at least acknowledge when we are experiencing them. All right, so let's see what happens, how they respond to one another, how God responds after they've eaten this fruit. I'm going to pick up in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, Well, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. So here we're seeing the blame game, all right? How do we attempt to justify or deflect our sin? Now we start with this, again, anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic big uh, $10 word there, picture of God walking in the garden uh, as if God is just kind of walking around so he can enjoy the cool breeze. Again, we should see that more as, as symbolizing, signifying God's closeness, the way that God dwells fully with humanity. And again, in Revelation at the very end, the New Jerusalem God is going to do that again, but uh, they don't want to be with God, right? In fact, they're trying to hide from God, which is obviously pretty silly, and yet we all do that too, don't we? Uh, it's not necessarily the same way. We don't imagine God walking around and hiding from him somewhere behind a bush. But how do you hide from God when you know you've done something you shouldn't? Uh, for me, it's I'm a little more hesitant to pray, which is probably the last thing that I should be doing when I've, I'm in a bad spot. Uh, but this is what shame does, right? The voice of shame tells us that there's something wrong with you deep down, and, and God is unhappy with you deep down, and you need to be afraid of God, in fact. It's not just guilt, right? There's guilt when we do something wrong, but shame is deeper, and that seems to be what they're really experiencing here. And shame does not help us to move past our mistakes. And so God uh, asks them a question, but it's, it's less accusing, Right at least at first, Uh, he doesn't say where, why are you hiding? What are you doing? He says, "Where are you?" Uh, Now obviously God knows where they are, and God knows what they've done. You know, he asks, "Did you eat the fruit?" Uh, He knows the answer to that. Again, it's just like when me uh, as a parent, uh, I find an empty bag of chips, and, and I ask my kids, "Hey, do you know what happened to the chips?" I know exactly what happened, but why do I ask? Because I want them to answer. I want them to be honest. Because if they can't be honest about it, then we can't really do anything about the situation. So it's just the same here between God and Adam and Eve. So this is the first time that people are afraid of God. You know, the fear of the Lord is, is a major concept, a language that appears a lot in Scripture. And, you know, generally that idea is more about respect or reverence or awe for God, less than actually just like terror, being afraid. But that's what it is here. They're just afraid. And so, uh, because they're afraid, they don't really answer the question. They deflect a little bit. Um, and God is focused on their loss of innocence, right? That's what the nakedness is, is really about. And again, God is trying to get Adam and Eve to, to be honest, to confess. But what does he do? He blames everyone else, right? Well, it's the, the woman gave it to me. In fact, God, you made this woman, so it's kind of your fault. What are you going to do, right? God's, God's to blame for all of this stuff that, that I did. And then God talks to the woman. She just blames the tricky serpent. Uh, so this is, again, it's, it's a very common human impulse. We see it here in this first story that we don't want to accept the blame. We don't want to accept any fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Uh, I'm not to blame for what I did. There's always other circumstances. Maybe somehow it's even God's fault. Right? If we always have this victim mentality, it's really hard to move forward and acknowledge our own mistakes. And a lot of times in the in you know in our day it is complicated uh, it's usually not just I 100% on my own did a bad thing yeah I usually am responding to somebody else and so everybody has a part to play in this but the important thing is that we can acknowledge our own faults and accept our own blame so what's the solution the solution is confession it's being willing to be honest with God with others and with ourselves, about what we've done to get ourselves into these messes. Sometimes it is our fault, sometimes it's not, uh, but can we have the honest eyes to see ourselves for what we've done and to see us the way that God sees us? Right? You would expect God to be a lot more angry in here, but he's not. Uh, God you know, wants them to be honest because God wants to, to make things right, uh, but when we can't be honest, there's nothing God can do about it. It's not that God doesn't want to forgive. If we can't acknowledge that we need forgiveness, then we're unable to receive what God is always offering. Uh, We'll see next time, even as there are consequences for these sinful choices, there's still grace as well. And that's always the case for us. Uh, God is a God of love and grace, and that is always there. And yet, if we can't accept uh, or admit our need for it, then we're never going to experience it. So hopefully we can learn to grow in maturity. Uh, We're not as childlike as Adam and Eve are presented here in this story. And as we grow in maturity, we admit where we're wrong and we see where we can do better. We can learn to discern between right and wrong as long as we do that listening to God and trusting God as much as we can. Thanks everyone. We'll pick up next time with uh, the rest of chapter three and look at the effects of sin. So look forward to that.